Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for that amazing truth that your unfailing love can cause us not a care in the world. We are not shaken because of your sovereignty. God, you are in control. We claim that today. We live that today. As we study your word, we follow that truth. And God, may you just confirm that in our lives as we leave this place. We love you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, how about you give a praise offering to the Lord for that truth in our lives. Thank you, praise team. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you may be seated. Well, good morning. Great to have you here at First Baptist. My name is uh, Brad Stahl, senior pastor here at First Baptist. And um, if you've been coming here over the last six or seven weeks, you'll know we have made it to the end of our timeline and the series that we are in, God's Grand Story. And today we're ending with the final chapter, kind of the end of the Old Testament, um, talking about the captivity and the coming kingdom. And I pray that um, if you have been here, that you have grown in your knowledge and your understanding of the Old Testament, but more than that, how God works in people's lives, how He worked in the Old Testament, people that we've seen, and how He also is working in our lives today in 2016. And so you see some of the uh, timeline that we've been covering. Each week we highlight it and come out in the white is what we're talking about. Uh, And that's what we're dealing with here today. And so what I want to do though, if you have not been here over the last number of weeks, I just want to go back and get a little um, broader and deeper kind of review of where we've come on this timeline right here. And so let me start as we've been going through the Old Testament back around 2000 B.C., where God makes a series of promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he says, from your descendants, you will have a kingdom that will never end. And that is a promise that they held on to and they grabbed into their life. In fact, that is such great background to know here that I want you to repeat that after me. A kingdom that will never end. Say that with me. A kingdom that will never end. Say it one more time. A kingdom that will never end. That is a promise that the Israelites are looking forward to. And they ask many times over, God, is it ending here? Is it ending here? Is it ending here? And one of the times I'm sure they asked it was when they got brought into captivity in Egypt. And you remember that they were in slavery. um, But then they were um, allowed to exit there and a glimmer of hope was brought in in 1400 B.C. Where Moses leads them out into the wilderness. They go through the desert. They have some times with giants and through kings and battling them. And finally they get some land in 1000 B.C. And it's the United Kingdom. It's, it's, It's the golden era. The Camelot of the days where they're united and they are living the dream. But then the promise seems to go the other way when there's a civil war. We talked about this last week with the divided kingdom. The north separates from the south. And the uh, northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And the people looking around and saying, it seems as though now that promise will not be sustained. And in 722 B.C. is when disaster strikes because Assyria comes and invades Israel and captures the northern kingdom. And then disaster part two begins in year 
600 BC or 605 BC when the southern kingdom is also captured and they are taken out to Babylon. They are shipped off as slaves. Now, in the Old Testament, the word Babylon, the name Babylon is used over 300 times. It is never a good thing when you're talking about Babylon. It was a horrible place to be and to live. And it was, it was um, iconic of evil. It was a symbol of the satanic system that was taking place. And now Babylon is defeating God's kingdom that is supposed to never, ever have an end. I, I mean, it's an incredible reversal of fortunes. And it feels like things are falling apart. It feels like evil has won. And this is where the story of Daniel enters in to God's grand story. Some of you might not have known that. Okay, yeah, Daniel, I've heard about him in, in the lion's den, and, and Daniel, you know, with Nebuchadnezzar, and, 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 and Daniel in the fiery furnace. This is the place. He's in Babylon. He's one of those captives that have been taken off. In fact, it's interesting if you even look into the history, and we see artifacts and such. Um, here's a picture of... Um, this scene of the Babylon um, rulers, leaders, taking the Jewish people into captivity. Um, that you can see on display. It's been discovered. Um, there's another uh, art form um, called the Cyrus Cylinder, which has a lot of writing that's on it that they've discovered. This is the king that, after those 70 years in Babylon, allows them to go back um, to, uh, to their country of Judah, or of, of Israel, really. Um, and, and so it's just interesting how biblically um, artifacts and archaeologists and history have been able to prove what takes place here in Scripture um, actually did happen. But what happened after Babylon carried the Israelites into captivity is um, uh, Persia then came in and overthrew Babylon. And so there's another country that they are just kind of falling underneath in their power. And so the book of Daniel takes place when there's this incredible disorientation for the Israelites. And that kingdom without end seems to be gone forever. And so the story begins in 605 B.C. when Daniel is just a teenager... And it ends in 539 B.C. when Daniel is an 80-year-old man. And if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the uh, seats or up in the pews upstairs. Uh, Daniel is about this far into the Bible. All right? Okay? Can't find that? You'll see it. Um, incredible, incredible stories taking place in here. And I wrote this up on your outline, so if you can put that on your lap or put it in your Bible right now, um, you'll see Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. We're just covering Daniel chapter 1. We're not going to go through all the other stories that maybe you've heard of the lion's den and the fiery furnace and, and, and all of those. We're just going to chapter 1 because it really opens up our eyes to what's going on in this time and this place. This is the captivity. This is the Israelites drug off into another land because of this disobedience to God. And so if you want to see it kind of as a movie theme, the movies would open up with the camera kind of panning across a war-torn city. And there's rubble, and there's smoke, and it's rising up above the land. 
And there's bodies strewn out over the land because death has come. Because in Daniel chapter 1, and you can kind of read this like the, you know, the Star Wars crawl, kind of setting the tone here. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and, what's the word there? And besieged it, captured it, grabbed it, overcame it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay, so already two verses in, you kind of scratch your head, okay, what's going on with these objects that are taking place here? Let me explain a little bit as we work through this. The Bible says that there were some 580 items of gold, silver, and bronze that were used in the temple to worship God, that were used also with the Ark of the Covenant. And we're we're not sure if the Ark of the Covenant was taken here, but the Jews no longer had the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelled. This was not just about stolen items. This was a moral disaster that they no longer had the Ark of the Covenant with them. And God had promised, remember our quote, a kingdom that would never end. And now the ark was gone. These other items were probably stolen, melted down, and probably even um, in the temples of other gods. And you have to imagine that the Israelites are scratching their head and saying, God, are you really still in charge? Are you still on the throne? Anybody feel that a little bit in 2016 as well, time to time? Yeah. Well, what's taking place here? Let, let, me, let me show you a, a, another translation of this verse, of, of verse 2 in Daniel chapter 1. New Living Translation translates a little differently. It, it kind of opens our eyes, though, to a truth. It says, and the Lord gave him victory, that is Nebuchadnezzar, over King Jehoiakim, that is Israel of, in the northern kingdom, uh, or of Judah, and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. I kind of like how that version reads because God was the one who allowed that to happen. God was the one who permitted those items to be gone. What's going on here? If God says, I will give you a kingdom without end, you've got to ask the question, why is he allowing his kingdom to be ransacked? Well, it ties in a little bit with what we talked about last week, and that is the story behind the story. For hundreds of years, God has been warning his people that disaster is coming. If you continue to live a life of sin, he spoke through his Old Testament prophets, then disaster is going to come upon your land. In fact, just before these things took place, Jeremiah, who's one of the prophets, um, had gotten up in front of Israel who had practiced now child sacrifice. They never should have done that. That's what other countries were doing, not God's country, but they were doing that type of thing. And Jeremiah says, the blood of innocent calls out to heaven because of what you have been doing. So what God does is he pushes the restart button. You ever had computer problems or even on your phone and you just say, okay, i got to shut this thing down for a bit, right? You, you, you push the reboot. You, you push the restart. 
And it seems like that's what God kind of does. He allows the other uh, uh, countries to overrun um, his kingdom. And for 70 years, he allows them to go through the consequences of what they have done. And so it's as though the author here, to begin the story, is kind of revealing to us who know kind of how the story goes, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. But here's the truth, and you can write this down. It's point number one there. The point is, God has purposes I cannot see. That in life, God has purposes and things that we may go through that we can't understand, that we can't see. But in the midst of it, God is still in control. And, and, and some of you who are here today, you, you need to hear that part of the story. Maybe you feel like you are captive and you're in a life that, God, that, that you did not sign up for. Hey, God, this was not part of the deal when I gave my life to you. Right? Maybe, maybe you felt like you should be married at this point in time in your life. And you're scratching your head saying, God, why am I not? Why, why am I still single? Maybe you had a spouse, maybe, who died, passed away, and you're really struggling with that. Maybe you didn't feel like you would land here in Stockton. You didn't feel like this was the place, and yet you're here. Maybe it's something about your health that you are going through, and you're really dealing with, and you're really struggling up against it. Maybe you're in a marriage And it has been a disaster, and you're pulling your hair out saying, God, I don't get this. Let me just reiterate. God has purposes for you in the midst of wherever you are and whatever you are going through. Maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe it's something in your home, in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a situation going on in your family. Walk through that with great integrity. Walk through that with God's presence in your life, and just know that if you're following him, God has purposes for you, even in the midst of where you are. That's act one. Let me give you act two. And and we kind of begin to see a hint of the plans beginning to unfold, because in chapter one, verse three, it says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. All right, what's going on here? Verse 4 says that he gathers the cream of the crop. He gathers these young men who are without physical defect, who are handsome, who are intelligent, who are smart, who are athletic, who are hard workers. It's me, right? No, just joking. I'm joking with you, okay? Oh, no, not me. Okay? But there are some of the just top-notch people and these young men who just are good-looking and they have got it together. Why does he go after these people? Why was he going after the young men? Because they were the next-generation leaders. They were the ones who would have influence and possibly even help the Jewish people to revolt in the land of Babylon. And so they're called before the king. And I'm sure as they're called before the king... They're thinking life is over. We're the leaders here. We're going before the king. I'm sure they even thought that they were going to be beheaded. 
But what the king does is he says, I don't want to behead them or kill them because that would make them martyrs. In fact, the people might rise up and see them as martyrs and then take and want to revolt against us. And so what he does is he kind of declaws them. He defangs them. He says, I don't want to create them to be martyrs. I want to create them to be one of us. I want them to be Babylonians. And you say, okay, well, why would he do that? Because what he's doing is he's trying to pull out all their culture. He's saying that he wants them to forget about Israel. He wants them to forget about their God. He wants them to one day say, you know what? Who is Yahweh? We don't even remember Yahweh. Jerusalem? We, we, we don't even remember that land. It's been so long back there. That's the plan. Like what, it, what, what um, as you follow that through, verse 4, uh, last part of it. The plan was to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So they're just trying to kind of leech out any connection with their Jewish heritage. Maybe they knew. The Babylonians knew that there was this kingdom without end thought. And they jumped on that and said, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to end this. And look at verse 7. The chief of the eunuchs gave them what? New names. All right. I mean, you can just see this taking place. Daniel, his name was, and you see it on the chart on your outline, his name meant... My judge is El, meaning the Jewish God. My judge is El. Notice they change his name to Belshazzar, and they name him. That name means may Bel protect him. In other words, may our God protect him. Their God's no longer going to. Their God no longer rules over him. It's Bel who now rules over him. And you can see his three friends, um, they also get names from Jehovah's gracious to illumined by Shad, which was the Babylonian sun god. You see another name, Meshach, which was who is like Shak, the love goddess. And no, that's not the seven-foot basketball player who played for the Lakers and such, right? But interestingly, it is where we get shacking up from. No, I made that up. So just joking about that. No, got that. Okay. Um, Abendigo. Abendigo. Um, that main name means servant of Nago, the, the uh, fire god. So they're taking the names away from them, and everything is being stripped from these teenagers. Their home, their royal lineage, their wealth, their position, their family, and now their identity. And, and the reason I, I, I sense this is kind of behavior conditioning is because the king gave them also the best food and the best wine. It's like he wined and dined them to love their new home, to love their new country, to love Babylon except for what begins to take place in verse 8. It says, but Daniel, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. 
This is where Daniel now begins to stand strong. And the text says that Daniel doesn't want to defile himself. So evidently this was you know, like non-kosher type food, adhering to his Jewish uh, custom. And he goes about this though, and understand this, and this is very delicate for us in 2016. He goes about standing up to people who are telling him to do something differently, but he doesn't do it in a belligerent way. Daniel um, stands up and he simply says, you know, um, I'd like not to be put on that diet. And how about I do a diet of veggies and water? Let's see if we can find a win-win here in this situation. Give us vegetables, give us water for 10 days, and if we are not as fit as your guys are at the end of those 10 days, then we'll get into the meat and the wine thing. We'll look at it at that point, but let me try that out. I think the point is here, and you have it on your second point there under act number two, is that in any place... I can live for God. In any place God puts me, I can still live for him. You know, some of you have kids, grandkids, some of you are college students here from University of Pacific or Delta or wherever it may be. It might feel like you have entered into the land of Babylon when you go off to college. It can definitely feel that way. You know what this tells me? This tells me you can live for God even where you are in your dorms or on your campuses. Those of you who are in the business world, you may get on business trips and those executives might take you to places and do things in the nightclubs and such that you never dreamt that you would have to do to kind of maintain your job. No, you can still live for God by doing it in the right way. Maybe it's on the construction site and you're with the workers and they're wanting to do and talk about certain things and share jokes and such. No, you can still live for God wherever you are. Maybe it's in the middle of your family or it's in your neighborhood uh, and your family has difficult times, or maybe it's with a neighbor and what they're doing, you can still live for God. You can be in the world, but not of the world. And that's where Daniel finds himself. He's in a different land, and they're trying to take a lot of things away from him and change him up and desensitize, almost brainwash him. He says, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll go a certain extent, but there are a few things that I will not do, in but not of. And as we're in this time in 2016, and even what's going to take place with our elections on Tuesday night, folks, please make your voice known because we as believers, we as Christians need to be in the world, just not of the world. And we need to make a difference. I was watching a video from Focus on the Family this week where they said all we can do now is pray and vote, pray and vote. And what they emphasized, though, is they said the next time elections come, would you please consider running for office? I am thrilled that we have someone like Michael Blower who attends our church here who is running for city council. There's a godly person who is wanting to say, I want to make a difference in the middle of what we're doing here in this city. We need more people to step up and do those kind of things and be involved in the government levels and be at that place. So yeah, maybe all we can do right now is pray and vote. Do vote. Do pray for our country. As I challenged you last week, take some time to fast and to pray for our country. But we need to step up and we need to say, God, even in the midst of where we are at, we can still live for you. Even when we feel like it's a dark, dark world. You know, Veterans Day is coming up on Saturday, or Friday. Reminded me of a story that I heard a number of years ago that came out of the Vietnam War 
um, of James Stockdale. Some of you might recognize that name. Here's a picture of him. Um, he became famous when he was held longer than any other POW, any other prisoner of war. He was captured and held in captivity for 2,714 years in captivity. That is seven and a half years that he was a POW in the most brutal camp uh, in the Vietnam War, the infamous uh, Hanoi Hilton. And he writes about it in his book, about how his captors would shackle him up and they would leave him in the sun for three days at a time and just let the sun blister him and they wouldn't treat any of the sunburns that he had. He writes about how he would fall asleep and they would wake him up. They would beat him to wake him up out of his sleep, just trying to play mind games with him. And how after one of his beatings, though, Jim Stockdale, or uh, excuse me, um, James Stockdale, hears the sound of a swishing, kind of a He's kind of questioning that. He's thinking, what, what is that? And it sounds like the snapping of a towel. And he hears it, and he recognizes it as being in rhythm, and he recognizes it as being Morse code. And he starts to listen to this, and it spells out G-O-D. And stops. And then it goes to B-L-E-S. S. And he begins to spell out this word, and he hears the word and puts it together, and it's God bless you, Jim Stockdale. And all of a sudden he realizes, someone knows I'm here. Someone knows my name. Someone is here even praying for me. And the other prisoners begin to pick up on what's going on between this exchange that happened there. And they uh, begin to share Bible verses in Morris Code as they begin to snap the towels. And they share Bible verses back and forth. And, and some of the prisoners, as they're led by some of the uh, cells, they would drag their feet. And as they would, they would kind of do things in Morris Code. And the other people could not pick up on this. The, cap, uh, the uh, army, the Vietnam uh, army couldn't pick up on this. And they would do this and they would pick up words that they would say. In fact, it even got down to bodily noises that they began to make. They would belch in Morris code to one another, um, and, and they would blow their nose in Morris code, and they would kind of be communicating back and forth. And, and, and what really was coming to pass here and coming to place was that they were saying that, hey, they can break our bodies, but they cannot break our spirits. Stay strong. Stay strong. Stay strong. I can live for God. You can live for God right where you are at. And that's what's taking place here in this land. Babylonians overrun the city. And Daniel and his men and, and, and his, uh, the brightest and the best are now trying to be brainwashed and changed. And so the plot gets to where the veggie diet and water is in place. And it's Act 3. What happens in the middle of it is they are healthier. They are in better shape. They are better nourished. They blossom. And go to chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, As these four youths, for as these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all the literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Which you might think, you know, why would God give him an aptitude for this foreign literature or this foreign nonsense, this Babylonian literature? I think what he's really saying here is, is Daniel, whatever you do, do with great excellence. There may be some things that you have to study in school. 
There may be some things that you have to learn and work, and you might think, what does this have to do with anything that is profitable and good for the kingdom? Do it with excellence, as long as it's not morally wrong. Study, study, that's fine. Um, Do whatever you do and do it well. See, Daniel drew the line um, at what he put into his body. He said, you want to give me a name change? Okay, give me a name change. If you want to change my location of where I'm living, okay, take me from here and put me in Babylon. That's all right. I'll live there in Babylon. If you want me to learn your literature, okay, I'll learn your literature. And by the way, I'm going to be the best at it. I'm going to know your literature back and forth. I'm not going to believe it, but I'll understand. I'll go through it, but I'm going to be respectful as I do it. I'm not going to be belligerent. And, And you know, there's a fine line there because in 2016, It's a difficult day to know when do we stand up for our Christian values and do that respectfully, and when do we look like we're being made fools for doing that. And that's the Holy Spirit that just needs to speak to you on how you interact with those situations as they come up. Because sometimes we can do something that might give Christ a bad name by taking too much of our um, pride down with something that we might do. So pay attention to the Spirit as he speaks to you. But Daniel is someone with excellence. He honors God, and, and, and God bolstered his testimony. In fact, he became a very um, respected leader. Go to verse 20. It says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about the king, uh, which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in um, all the kingdom. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, which is some 80 years later. And he is blessed with intelligence. He's blessed with longevity. He is being respected in this land. And what I think that gets at, it's the last point there on your outline, or excuse me, on the back page uh, under point three or act three, is that God can bless me right where I am. Right in the middle of where you are. You might not enjoy where you are at in life at this point in time. But God can bless you in the middle of where you are at. It might be a dead-end job that you are in. It might be a, a marriage that you're working through. Maybe it's on the other end where you're single. Whatever stage of life you're in, God can work through those circumstances in your life. In fact, look at the, look at the points again there. It says, God has purposes I can't see. It says, in any place I can live for God. And the last point on the back page was, point, God can bless me right where I am. In fact, you know, let me give you the last fill-in. The message of the book of Daniel is really this thought that God is in control. That's really what takes place here. And can I just encourage you that if you're a worrier or you fret or there's a circumstance going on in your life right now that you are so uncertain about, it is good news to know that God is in control. Amen? Amen. And the sleep that we forfeit because we forget that and try and take that upon ourselves, God never intended for us to have to have. Now, don't put your stuff away yet because the most exciting part is coming. Yeah, I finished the fill-ins, but, but watch this. Let me kind of wrap this up by skipping ahead in the story. 
Because what happens is Daniel becomes the head of the royal advisors under the Persians. Remember I said the Persians then took the land over from Babylonia, um, and the Persians now rule. And, and the name of these royal advisors that you'll probably recognize were the, was the name, get this now, the Magi. Where else do we see Magi in the Bible? At the birth of Jesus, don't we? Very interesting. Daniel was a leader amongst those people. Magi or wise men or kings were from the Far East. Where do you think these Persian Magi got their information about a Jewish Messiah? From Daniel. Daniel is placed right in this land to begin to put all of this together for even the people in Persia at this place and time. In fact, look at chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Let me just read it from the screen. It says, this is Daniel talking. He says, in a vision, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. All right, what are you getting at there, Pastor Brad? This is Daniel, and remember where it says there, with the clouds? That means one who comes in power. And then it says, I saw one like a Son of Man. Does anybody remember what Jesus often referred to himself as? Son of Man. In fact, when he was crucified, um, he was crucified because in the courts they said, you have claimed to be the Son of God, you are blaspheming God's name, and it was one of the reasons that he was even crucified because he claimed that. It goes on to say, and to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him, uh oh, watch this now, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, it's a kingdom without what? Without end. And there's Daniel filling in the last part of this before Christ comes onto the stage. There's Daniel saying, hey guys, we may be in captivity, but the king is coming. Hey guys, maybe the dream feels like it is dying. No, it doesn't have to die. It is alive. You don't have to give up. Don't give in. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, we see that Daniel even predicts the time that the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem. And he announces um, that the Christ child will come. And he says it will be exactly 490 years from when Jerusalem is rebuilt. And in 490 years, that's when the Magi show up looking for the promised Christ child, led by what up in the sky? A star. Those are the three or the how many wise men magi came along because they had heard it in history and they knew a king was coming. Daniel's prophecies are here to connect the tapestry of of the greatest story that is ever told. And it's like God is just kind of putting these pieces into place. Remember what I said at the beginning of this series? It's like a, a puzzle. And we have the framework. And we want to see now how God puts the picture together. And we have the picture even on the box. And so let's begin to put it together. That's what God does. And here's Daniel. He's in the middle of this. Maybe not loving that he's in Babylon. 
Maybe not, uh, you know, this is not the place I necessarily want to be, but here's God using him in a great way. God, the, the master chess player, kind of sizing it up and putting it together. And you, First Baptists, have just walked through over the last six, seven weeks, going through those Old Testament stories, seeing how God moved along, and now we see a greater picture where the Christ child is coming. Not just the captivity, but the Christ child is coming. And that's what happens at Christmas time. After 400 years of silence, we see the picture taking place. And Daniel, even when it didn't appear this way, is there saying, God is in control. And in your life, I hope you sense the same thing, that whatever you are going through, God is still in control. And when we wake up on Tuesday morning, on Wednesday morning, after the elections have taken place, is God not still in control? Absolutely. And whatever takes place after those elections, whatever takes place in your workplace, whatever takes place in your family this week, this month, this year, whatever situations you are going through, it is good to know that God is still in control. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for being the one who's in control of everything and all things. We want to submit to your authority. May we not be like the Israelites who went through such destruction and hard and difficult times because of their disobedience. Lord, may we be people who say, God, we love you. We serve you. We want to follow you. And may we save ourselves the hurt and the uh, difficult days when we kind of venture off into our own way and do our own thing. God, may we be like Daniel and his friends who stood up in a land that was hard and difficult and tough. May we, as we've even put these pieces together and seen how your story has played out and see this grand story and all the pieces that are put together, God, may we have greater appreciation, greater appreciation for how you are working in our lives today. And Lord, whatever situations are going to be encountered by my brothers and sisters here in this auditorium, Lord, may we continue to know that you are in control over our health, over our jobs, over our family disputes, over the tough times perhaps at the holidays, over tough decisions that others make upon us and affect us. Lord, whatever it may be, you are still in control. And Lord, may we live our lives that way. And folks, if you have not come to the place of saying, I want to know this God who has all control of life, we open the book and we see that after hundreds of years of silence, and even this prediction by Daniel, we see that the Christ child comes, that is Jesus. And he comes for you and he comes for me. He comes not to be a ruling king, but a king who lives within our hearts, who rules our individual lives. And we see through that that the kingdom never ends. It will have no end to it because until the day, Jesus, you come again, we are in submission to you. We love you. We thank you for coming for us. If there be anybody here today who has not prayed to receive Christ, it would be a prayer of faith that you say, Lord Jesus, would you come into my heart on this day? And if you do so, I would be most honored if you would come and share that decision with me. We want to help you take your next step and what that means of surrendering your life to Christ and saying, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you now.
God, there's others of us who have already made that decision, but we want to continue to follow through with it. May we realize your grand picture, your grand story, and how you fit us into that. Lord, we walk according to your ways. We love you. We thank you. For it's now in the name of Jesus that we pray and celebrate.